Hello, and welcome to Yo's podcast, Back to Work. I'm your host, Joe McIntyre, and we're thrilled to welcome back Regina Blair for part two of our discussion on key strategies for improving diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. Regina is Vice President of Talent and Diversity and Inclusion at Dane Zimmerman, and if you haven't caught it, please go back and listen to part one of our discussion. As you know, we've been living in this new normal for more than two years now, uh, and it has brought many changes uh, to when and how we work, but also how we learn about each other. In the Zoom and work from home era, this may be tough, but what are some of the best ways to host diversity and inclusion events? And how do you define success of these programs? You know, one of the things that I always like to do is we're putting out employee resource group events or diversity and inclusion events, or really any kind of, any kind of forum where we're inviting people to take time from their very busy workday and, and listen in or actively participate. One of the things that works best <laughs> is to partner with external resources, right? It's, you know, there's nothing like being told something by someone that you don't know. Somehow there's some weight and credibility to that as opposed to hearing it from, you know, your, your standard internal resources. So a strong recommendation would be to bring in external voices into the conversation and let people know ahead of time who's going to be joining. And inevitably, that generates a lot more interest than just, you know, just us. <laughs> Another recommendation would be to um, engage senior leaders and give people some exposure to, um, you know, to our CEO, Hal Yo, or his direct reports. Not many people have ongoing visibility at that level. So anytime you can engage senior leaders in the conversation, um, it's it's a good draw to uh, to get more participation. Um, you know, we're trying to get more creative around how we deliver trainings, right? So if we can entice people with music or video clips or, you know, just any kind of um, anything other than PowerPoint, frankly, um, that's always a good way to catch people's attention, catch their eye, and ask them to, to spend their time. And then lastly, I would say, how do we promote diversity events? How do we promote them by tying the event or the discussion to what's going on in the business, right? Because at the end of the day, people are taking time out of their workday and so if we, the more we can connect diversity, equity, and inclusion to what's going on on a day-to-day -day basis um, at their job or in their work, um, the more we can make that connection, the more people will get to dial in. Now, Regina, not to ask you to de defend your position or role, but uh, how important is having a DE&I officer in the workplace? Um, obviously, these, you know, your position, these roles um, didn't exist many decades ago um, and are more important than ever. And also, what would you maybe say to those companies who may think they're too small to have a dedicated DE&I officer? Um, and how would they go about, if they don't necessarily have the budget, creating uh, a program that really fits for them? Sure. Well, I'm always happy to, to defend my role. <laughs> <laughs> I think that having accountability as an organization is what drives progress. And from a diversity standpoint, 
having someone who's dedicated and focused and brings expertise into the space of hiring, attracting, retaining and developing diverse talent is absolutely mission critical. Sometimes organizations disperse the responsibility and that makes sense to a certain extent. But when you when you diversify or disperse the responsibility, accountability becomes harder to capture. And so the importance of having a role like mine or, or at any other company is to, um, you know, have one person who's looking at, at looking at the work, looking at the results, looking at the activity. And as we also spoke about looking at the outcomes on a day over day basis. Two caveats that I would say is the diversity role needs to be more than just a figurehead role. It needs to have direct access to the CEO and it needs to be a seat at senior leadership tables. It can't just be someone, you know, sitting off to the side that we, you know, we have a diversity person. And the second thing I would say is that, you know, it almost contradicts what I just said, but, you know, the diversity leader can't be the only person responsible. So they can be accountable, but they can't be responsible. If you think about it, a diversity leader doesn't make all the hiring decisions that happen every day at a company. They don't make the promotional decisions that happen every day at a company. But they, they're accountable for the results. And how we do that is through um, holding other leaders accountable and giving them the tools, the resources, and the training that they need. So critical role, um, accountability, uh, driven by accountability, but also not the only person responsible. Accountable, but not responsible all the time. Now, I want to take a quick step back for uh, for a second here. I'm sure you talk about this all the time uh, in, in your role, but can you define unconscious bias for our listeners and um, help explain why employers and employees alike need to be aware of, of it in the workplace? Sure. So the definition of unconscious bias that I would share is one that says that an unconscious bias is either an inherent or a learned stereotype about people or groups of people that everyone forms without even realizing it. So unconscious bias are unconscious biases are social stereotypes, right? About an individual, a group, or uh, an institution. Everyone, everyone has unconscious bias about various groups. And sometimes those unconscious biases aren't even aligned with what you would consider to be your, your conscious stated um, lived values. And so why it's important in the workplace is that it shows up across the talent spectrum. It shows up in terms of the candidates that we interview, shows up in terms of how we go about interviewing them, shows up in our hiring actual decisions beyond the interview process. Who do we decide to hire? It shows up in terms of how we um, promote individuals and assumptions that we have about people's career aspirations. 
Um, and it shows up in who we choose to develop in terms of stretch assignments or special projects or, um, you know, leadership development programs. It shows up uh, all the time. A couple of um, examples of, of bias uh, that come to mind are, um, you know, something called confirmation bias, right, which is where we, as an interviewer, um, might form an opinion about a candidate based on the the college or university that the candidate attended, or the fact that they didn't attend a college or university. Um, we might develop that opinion before we even interview them. Um, or, so that's kind of confirmation bias, or, um, affinity bias, right, which is a natural, very human tendency to be attracted to people who are just like you. And this can happen across, again, the entire spectrum of the of the talent life cycle, but most notably in the, you know, kind of resume review process or, or during an interview. The only other example I would share would be kind of bias based on superficial factors like tattoos or or weight piercings right people tend to make snap judgments based on some observable data and transfer that over to the person's uh, to the assessment of the person's capability to do the job and so it's extremely important that we are aware of these biases um, we all have them but to push ourselves to move past them and think beyond them and look at the real talent experience that the person is bringing to the table. Yeah, that's that was my follow up question. Uh, these are, you know, defined as unconscious biases. So what are some of the best ways to, to fight these biases? Um, is it is it a matter of having multiple people, especially in the hiring process? multiple people interview someone to get different perspectives, um, but that's just one aspect. How do we fight these uh, on an ongoing basis as much as we can? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, training, you don't know what you don't know, right? right. So bringing it to the to the forefront and having it be part of the ongoing conversation around talent, I think is first and foremost. So how do we, you know, providing training for hiring managers, providing training for you know, people leaders and um, just kind of keeping the conversation front and center and pushing pushing the conversation. So I'll give you an example. We had a conversation recently as an organization about what do you want me to call you and why does it matter? And so that conversation was important because it encouraged people to think through um, you know, use of language in in the interview process, right? Am I is it African American? Is it black? Is it gay? Is it is it bi? Is it like what's the language that I'm supposed to use, and why is it important for me as an interviewer or hiring manager or manager to get the language right um, to make sure that I'm not incorporating some of my unconscious bias into the language that I'm using in conversations. So super important. I think training is 
is front and center. I think um, part of the training includes holding our holding one another accountable and having the the courage as an individual to say, hey, listen, I heard something that you said, and I want to ask you what you meant, or I want to push back, or I want to have a discussion about it. And finding that courage is um, something that we need to include in in training, but also um, support from a cultural standpoint. Um, some more systemic things, obviously, um, you know, diverse interview panels so that um, you can have multiple voices when hiring decisions are being made, I think is, absolutely, is absolutely, uh, you know, absolutely critical. And um, Regina, we know that simply hiring diverse people from diverse backgrounds and minorities is not enough. Companies actually need to keep them uh, and make sure that they feel fulfilled in their roles. What are some practices to ensure that companies are retaining diverse top talent in the workplace and not just hiring them and kind of letting folks um, letting folks leave uh, after a few months or years or whatever it may be? Sure. Um, so I think one of the important ideas that companies can can act on is this idea of stay conversations, right? So we talk about exit interviews or when people leave the organization, asking them on their way out the door, what happened? You know, why did you make this decision? I think particularly from a diverse standpoint, we need to have stay interviews or stay conversations. What's, keep, what's keeping you here? Why do you come to work every day? What's motivating you? What do we need to do to make, make sure that you stay engaged and fulfilled and challenged? So I think um, state interviews are a really practical tool. But to get to the right people to talk to for state interviews, there's also a level of strategic su succession planning, succession management. And so do you have a policy or practice in place where you're identifying high performers of all kinds, but with a specific focus on your women and your people of color? Do you have a policy and practice in place where you sit down and org at the org level, do a deep dive on what talent you have? And then that will inform who needs to be engaged in some type of, of stay conversation. So strategic succession planning and stay conversations, and then finding interesting ways to keep people engaged through diverse talent engaged through stretch assignments or rotational um, opportunities or, or special projects. It is, um, it's, it's really just an attention to detail from the org level strategy, talent strategy standpoint, down to stay interviews and development conversations, and then putting together meaningful um, action items for our high performing diverse talent. Now, I want to go back to uh, that Yo poll that we talked about a little earlier. Uh, one of the data points that we got was that some employed Americans feel their company focuses more on hiring women and people of color and less so on hiring people from the LGBTQ plus community. How do we ensure that 
group specifically is represented without also running afoul of asking folks these types of questions in the hiring process that may get people into trouble? Sure. I think it's all about our employer brand. So as an organization, we participate annually in the Human Rights Campaign Survey, which is um, the HRC is an organization that assesses workplace favorability, for lack of a better way to put it, for the LGBTQ plus community. They rate on a score of zero to 100. For 2022, our score was uh, a 90. And so we're super proud of that. And we also um, know that we have some some work to do, but we publicize our HRC rating every year. We celebrate, including social, all of our social media networks, including, for example, the June Pride Parade in the city of Philadelphia this past weekend. So it's all about how do we create and share externally a culture of inclusion for the LGBTQ plus community. Um, I would encourage companies to reinforce their LGBTQ plus employee resource group, make sure they have the right leaders and executive sponsors in place, and really invite them to the table from a policy and practice standpoint. And then lastly, outside of branding and leveraging your employee resource group, again, I would revisit policies and practices that are important to this group. So again, things like adoption policy or things like adoption benefits, things like um, um, time off from work, things like um, partner benefits, um, revisiting all of those policies and practices and articulating them externally so that we not only keep the employees that we have, but that we can attract um, attract more to the organization. Finally, as we look ahead, uh, in your eyes, what does the future look like in five years, 10 years, 25 years, when it comes to improving diversity and equity in the workplace? What needs to happen either at the organizational level the regulatory level or even the individual level to make uh, to make this a reality, to make these uh, this this progress truly come to life. Yeah, I'm excited about the future of diversity, equity and inclusion. There are all kinds of um, examples around the journey that an organization takes right from, you know, com- kind of a compliance mindset around diversity all the way to, um, you know, depending on the model, three or four steps later, an inclusive organization and what that what that looks like. And I think every organization is on its on its journey, but we started the call with some demographics. The numbers are telling us where we're headed. We're going there one way or another. So I'm excited about the opportunities that sit ahead of us with um, you know, a younger generation coming into the workforce and uh, an, an older, more mature generation sharing and leaving their legacy organizational knowledge. And um, it's going to be an exciting, it's going to be an exciting and, and, and fun time with generational shifts, um, with women taking on increased responsibility and accountability in organizations. The data tells us loud and clear that 
organizations that have women in board of advisor roles or very senior roles outperform those that don't. It's just the data. So um, I'm excited about what the future holds for us um, at Day and Zimmerman and across, uh, you know, across American industry. We're going to have to respond to the changing demographics and the companies that welcome that and embrace it and get ahead of it will um, will be around to play the infinite game for a long time. Well, Regina, I want to thank you so much uh, for joining us today and sharing your insights, tips, and strategies uh, on improving diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. It was a great conversation. Thanks. It was fun. Awesome. And to hear future episodes of this podcast, we ask our listeners to please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen in. For Yo's Back to Work, I'm Joe McIntyre. Thanks for listening.